Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the blurred lines between retail and DTC with my good friend, Guy Quatana. How's it going there, Guy? Hey, Joe. How are you? Good. Please pronounce your name correctly. <laughs> Not the Guy part. I know I got that. <laughs> you did a pretty good job. But yeah, so so again, it's uh, it's Guy Courta. So for my friends up in Montreal or over in Paris, they'll get it. But yes, for all the others, it's, it's always a struggle. But you did a great job. Yeah, for people in the Midwest, it's Corton. Yes. <laughs> or in the South, it's Corton. Right. So, Guy, please introduce yourself and your company. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So, again, really, really excited to be back on this podcast. So, again, my name is Guy. I, uh, last time we talked, I was, I've since switched, but I'm now joined Texas, uh, T-E-C-S-Y-S. We are a enterprise robust supply chain company. My role at Texas is I'm the vice president and industry principal for retail. So focusing on the industry of retail and, you know, working with all of our customers in that space. And, and again, what we provide is, is sort of full end-to-end supply chain solutions, everything from execution to order management to other parts of the supply chain. So really excited about, uh, about this new adventure for me and, and more importantly, this, this opportunity to chat again. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So I had Guy on my podcast, oh, I don't know, th- three months ago, maybe a few months back, and he was a really great guest. We had we talked about rethinking fulfillment. And anyway, the other day, it was a great podcast. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot, got good feedback on it. And then the other day, I saw on LinkedIn that Guy was in Authority Magazine. I took a glance at that, and I was like, ooh, Guy's changed jobs, and he's got some interesting ideas. So I thought, I'm going to bug him to see if he'll come back. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I do appreciate you coming back. Absolutely, Joe. Anytime. Anyway, the topic today is the blurred lines between retail and DTC. That is not exactly what you talked about in Authority Magazine, but it's an idea that when we were prepping, we kind of talked about because it really is blurred lines. And I know I've touched on this in a few other podcasts, but it's such a big thing and it's happening so quickly right before our eyes. And I think in a lot of ways, when I hear Amazon, I think online, when I hear you know Target, I think retail and but those lines are blurring so speak to that a little bit key yeah no absolutely joe and, and thanks for for the plug too on the piece on authority magazine it was it was really good and i think we're going to touch upon a lot of things that i talked about in that interview but to your point you know what we're seeing today and i think it's not even happening it has happened and has continued to happen right before us without us even realizing at some levels which is really this this world where what is a retailer what is a brand? What is a direct to consumer brand? What are they? You went back 20, 30, 40 years, and, and there's sort of a clear delineation where you would have your traditional retailer, you know, whether it's a mom and pop store or then became malls or, or other big box retail. Then you had your, your sort of your manufacturers, right? Your brands that would manufacture, store, ship, move products into wholesale, and then wholesale would go out and sell it to us. And you and I would go into a a store and we'd have a a whole host of brands that we have access to. But we sort of trusted that that retailer was curating those for us and that we trusted that the retailer was the one sort of promoting or, or being the one that's the gatekeeper, if you will, to those products. Fast forward to today. And then again, it's been happening. It's not like it just happened this year or during COVID. 
But all of a sudden, now you have these blurred lines where, well, am I talking to the brand itself? Am I talking to the retailer? Am I talking to the retailer's private label? What is going on here? And I think it's really fascinating where we really have this blurring of demarcations between these different sub-segments, if you will, where, you know, for example, I, I think you and I have talked about this, but you look at someone like a Costco, right? They're deemed a retailer, which they are, and they're going to sell you, you know, spices by McCormick, and they're going to sell you foods by like Dave's Killer Bread and all these other third parties are going to sell. But guess what? They're not going to sell this Kirkland brand, and that's their private label. Right. And by some accounts, you know, I was, I was looking at some numbers the other day, it's, it's going to be about 25% of their revenue. Right. And by some, I think UBS said expects it, the valuation of it to be about $75 billion worth of valuation just in that brand Kirkland, which is bigger than most traditional brands, you know, like Estee Lauder and others. So all of a sudden, what is Costco? Are they a retailer or are they a direct-to-consumer? Right. It's interesting, Guy. I was visiting my mom and my one of my buddies lives right down the street from my mom. So watching some of the ball games, the basketball games through March Madness and He's got all these big boxes from Costco. Now, I know there's no Costco in that city or close by. And I said, do you drive all the way out to where I live to go to Costco? He goes, no, I just buy everything online from there. So to him, Costco is just an online retailer. And to me, I live by Costco. So I go to Costco. The idea of buying online from them is like, why Why would I do that? Right. I like walking around. There's They don't feed you anymore no. during the pandemic, but <laughs> soon hopefully we'll be eating again at Costco. We'll, we'll be having our lunch, our lunch breaks at Costco to have lunch there. Absolutely. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about this. So let's first talk about traditional retailers that are like Costco, who are kind of moving in the direction of direct-to-consumer or e-commerce, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and I think we're, we're looking at, air quotes again, traditional retailers that we deem like the Walmarts, right? The Kohl's, the Targets, the Costco's of the world, the Kroger's, right? You know, these are all traditional retails reselling or selling really through wholesale other brands, if you will. But I think what they realized is part of the challenge for them is how do they continue to capture customer value? How do they continue to capture customer data, right? I think that's a big part of why these private labels do well is because they do have a lot of POS data. And I think a lot of times they're able to look and to say, hey, these four categories have really high margin. We could do the same thing. Let's go out and do it. So I think part of it too, which is interesting, you know, you know, you know, I talked about this during one of our prep calls is I was doing some research and looked up this article from Harvard Business Review from 1986, right? You know, another millennial. The olden days. The olden (laughs) days, right? And it talked about the rise of private label within retail. And the Crux of the argument from that article, which is really interesting, is, well, private label is really great for these retailers during economic downturns, where people are much more cost conscious. And I always remember as a kid, you know, having sort of the generic product, right? The, the generic oh, yeah. beer, <laughs> right? And a white can that just said beer, right? Or, or the Wheaties, it was a white box and just said, you know, cereal. And you bought that, why? Because it was, it was more economically viable, but the product itself was not necessarily up to par with a Kellogg's or an Anheuser-Busch. Fast forward to today, and I think that has sort of evolved where a lot of these private labels now have have matched the quality of a right. traditional, you know, direct-to-consumer, traditional brand. And these retailers are realizing, wait a minute, I want to take some of that shelf space for myself. I want to own some of that relationship. And I also, by the way, I want to create some brand loyalty with my end customer where, hey, my consumer is going to come to Costco because they like buying the Kirkland cashew nuts right. and they're going to come back and get it instead of buying the planters. 
And then that loyalty now is not necessarily to Costco, but it's also a Costco's brand. Right. Same thing at like, places like Target. Like I remember when, when my son was little, I bought a lot of his clothing at Target that was Target brand. And I was like, hey, this is good. It's quality. He's going to outgrow it in three or four months anyway. So, and it, it looks like a Gap product or Banana Public or a Jim Bree or something. I'm just going to get it from here. So I think for the retailers, right, it's an avenue by which they can try to build more intimacy with their customer, capture more data, capture more loyalty. And it makes a lot of sense for them. And to your point, like, like you're talking about your friends, like I'm going to buy from Costco because it's a platform that sells good stuff. And, and I don't think of it as a physical or a online presence. I just think of it as a brand and I don't distinguish between retail or, or DTC. You know, it sounds like a Costco infomercial now, but um, <laughs> when I was on, so I like to drink red wine in, in moderation, of course. And so you go to the store and you buy a bottle of red wine. Well, I don't know, not so long ago, there was this blend of red wines, but it was in a box. And that was like the ultimate tacky thing to do. Like I bought a box of red wine, like, <laughs> right. like what a hillbilly Joe is, right? But I was like, I'm going to try it. I'm not that cultured. I'm not from, I don't have your French Chinese ancestry <laughs> there. So I don't know. And um, I put ice in my red wine because I'm, I'm, I am a hillbilly. Anyway, these boxes of red wine were really inexpensive, like $20, but it's like three bottles, right? Well, recently I noticed the price going down to like $16, $18. Just, I don't buy that much of it. Kirkland all of a sudden starts selling it for 12 bucks, their own Kirkland brand. And so I remember I brought it over to my friend's house and said, I only buy the good box wine for you. <laughs> and <laughs> only the finest box wine for my friends. I remember him saying, everybody's drinking that now. That's the, that is yeah. the de facto red wine among my friends. And uh, it's 12 bucks for three bottles. So it's good quality. I don't think of the quality as bad. I mean, again, I'm not a wine connoisseur by any stretch, but it's a private label for Costco. Yep. And then you can buy it on, well, you can't buy it online. You have to buy that in person because it's wine. But definitely we start to see more traditional retailers moving into this online space. And then we have the other side of it, Guy, which is digital native brands. And I'll just mention a few that like Warby Parker and Casper, they're moving the other way. They're moving to physical locations. So speak to that. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Joe. It's interesting because you have, again, blurring the lines, right? You have this traditional you have these players that were at times, like we talked about this, Everlane was adamant a few years ago. They would never open stores. Now they have stores, right? Because I think a lot of these players came out or came in during this world of being online, being digitally native, and being able to realize, hey, we're going to reduce our costs. Why? Because we're going to have the physical store. We're not going to have labor. We're not going to have rents, right? We're not going to carry inventory in these expensive places. We're going to hold it back in the supply chain, carry a distribution center, do everything online, let Joe buy a mattress through Casper, and then we're going to ship it to you in this you know, really cool box. You're going to open it up, and boom, there's your mattress. Fantastic concept, and I think it, it makes a lot of sense. What happened, though, is they realized at some level to build true customer intimacy, you need to be wherever that customer may be, not just online, but physically. You also realize very quickly, and the king of all this, Amazon, right? and I'm not even talking about their whole food purchase, but they're opening more and more Amazon you know, branded stores. And what's fascinating is you go through them and it's very little or very small skew count in there, usually a small footprint. But what they're doing is they're harvesting these mountains of data they have on that, that particular area, that buying persona that's going to be there. And they're, 
you know, they're slotting in items in there that you know, hey, these are a four to five star rating that you're going to probably buy. Right. Oh, by the way, we have all of our electronics in here. So all of the speakers and, and you know, assistants that we sell are going to be there too. They're realizing all these brands is that to truly build that intimacy, you need to be wherever your customer is. Right. It doesn't mean you're going to open 10,000 square foot store, but it means you might need to be where I'm going to walk past or where I want to go to. Right. And I think of like Warby Parker with this glasses. To me, when I'm going to buy glasses, I like the idea of putting them on. I just bought a laptop. I bought it at Best Buy. And the reason I bought it at Best Buy is because I wanted to lift it up and see how heavy it was. I wanted to put my fingers on the keyboard, mess around. I can't do that online. And what's interesting, when I bought it, they said, we don't have any in, in stock. Right. It'll be here Thursday. They go, do you want it to deliver to your house or to your home? So again, another blurred line. I think when we were prepping for this year, uh, marketing guy Adam was on and he was saying how he wanted to buy a Tesla. Yeah. But he couldn't drive one because they didn't have a dealership by him. Right. And he said, he just really, he goes, I, you know, it's great to read all the online reviews, but I want to get in. I want to see how I feel in it. You know, I want to touch the steering wheel. And since he couldn't, he bought something else. Yeah. And I think that's the part where, you know, what's interesting about this, this convergence too is, and this blurring of lines is a lot of times you sort of think, well, a lot of this is the digital aspect, right? The front end, the, the pretty website, the mobile site, the, the, the ability to pay online, the ability to check fraud online, right? The ability to see or have access to endless aisle type concepts, right? Where all of a sudden I can see everything. End of the day though, we're still buying a physical good. Maybe for some items, some brands, like we feel comfortable. For example, you know, I'll, I, I love Bonobo's clothing. I'll buy them. Why? Because I've bought enough to know what size fits me, you know, what, what I like. But I certainly return plenty of it. And now that they've opened physical stores, I certainly enjoy going in to actually, as you said, see stuff, touch stuff, try it on, right? Because we know that things, you know, so cut and all those things when it comes to garments can change by the supplier, by who they're using. Cars are the same thing. So a lot of the things that we're seeing, I think that's why you need that sort of physical aspect because people are still going to want to go in and look. Warby Parker is a fantastic example. You mentioned, Joe, you know, it's funny. My girlfriend just bought a new pair of Warby Parker glasses and they have a very cool function where through the app, you could, you know, put your phone up against your face and you can try different. And it's, it's, it's done pretty well. I will admit, I think it's very like guilt started doing this a long time ago and it was, it was cool, but it was kind of glitchy. Now it's very good, but we still wanted to go in and actually see the frames. You want to touch it, see how it feels on your face. You're going to be wearing this 10 hours out of the day. You want to make sure that they've, just because they look good, you want to make sure like, well, this doesn't fit exactly the way I thought. Or, and to Adam's you know, point about the test, like, yeah, I want to come in. I want to, I want to see where the radio is. I know what it's supposed to look like. And I want to see what the seats feel like and the adjustments. You know, there's still this notion that, well, yes, a lot of what we're doing is now worked or the blurred line to the digital world. We're still acquiring a physical asset. Right. Right. And it's interesting. I think there's also in terms of brand building, the way brands have built in your mind over time was I saw it all the time. Coca-Cola, Jeep, whatever it was, saw the TV commercials, saw them out in the real world. But also there's the point of sale stuff that when I go into a store, there's the big Coke display, there's the big planters, peanuts or whatever. And um, that's changing. And it it, it is interesting. It's changing a lot. And you mentioned the lower skew count in Amazon store. Costco has very low skew count yes. compared to other stores. So 
And I think what they've done is they look for something that wins the category. So when you go there, and I think they're the number one seller of toilet paper and the number one seller of alcohol now. And, yeah. and they have figured it out. You have to, you've got to go in and you got to buy a lot, but they don't have a lot of SKUs. Yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. It's amazing. You go to a Costco and, and you look at the, the breadth of choices. You go to your traditional grocery, you go to a Kroger, and you go down the bread aisle. And it's ridiculous. Or I, I forget the count, but you go down, there's some like 18 or 19 different kinds of Crest toothpaste. Right. But you go to Costco, there's Crest, but there's only one kind. Now there's three tubes of it, but there's only one kind. And, oh, if you want like Sensodyne toothpaste, there's there, that too. But that's about it. You know, if, if you wanted some other kind like, a, you know, Arm & Hammer baking soda toothpaste right. or you wanted something else, it's not going to be there. Colgate, yep. what have you. But you've made that choice. You're like, hey, this is a brand I like. I'm going to go to Costco, buy it. I'm going to buy it in bulk, you know, save some money supposedly. And then I have it for the next three years, but I've saved some money. But I think it's, it goes to those choices. And I think it's, it's interesting that blurring of lines is, you know, we as consumers, we believe or we don't believe, we demand sort of a whole range of choice, both from products, but things like fulfillment, things like touch points, right? I want to be able to access you online. I want to be able to come to your store. And maybe I want a pop-up store because, hey, if it's a florist, maybe I want a pop-up store close to me for Mother's Day. I want those options. And I think what it's creating as we start this conversation is both the retailers and the brands are realizing that they there's a race to meet our expectations. And I think you, you mentioned um, the pop-up. and th- That's another thing that when I'm buying something online, oftentimes I can get it same day, next day. But if I want to go on my way somewhere, I'm going to go to retail stores, right? Yeah. If I say, oh, I forgot to get a gift for this party I'm going to. Oh, I got to run by a store on the way. I don't want that option taken away from me. I don't care how good e-commerce gets. I'm still going to make those last minute decisions. Right. And I think what, what we realize and we've realized more and more, I think you and I have known this forever, but I think the general public realizes this is that no matter how good e-commerce gets, part of that reality is that it's limited again by the physics, the physics of the world, right? It doesn't matter how many Amazon trucks I put out there. At the end of the day, I can't drive faster than the roads let me. I cannot physically deliver stuff much faster than I can. We just saw this, what happened in Suez, right? A ship runs aground in the Suez Canal and it backs up the Suez Canal that's a physical aspect of the supply chain that no matter how digitized you are, I can't get around that. Right. So you, right. you know, there, there's a certain aspect of, yeah, I need a store. I need physical stores. Stores are being redefined. Absolutely. No argument there, but the need for stores remains high. You and I've talked about this before, you know, some of the numbers I looked at is e-commerce. Yes. During the pandemic grew at 40%, but e-commerce is still about 20 to 21% of overall retail. Still a massive number, don't get me wrong. But that still means 80% of retail is done in the store. Right, right. And so, yeah, and it, it's it's definitely merged, but still retail is king. So the first thing we talk about is more tr- traditional retailers kind of moving into direct-to-consumer. Then we see these digital native brands, people who grew up online thinking we don't need physical locations, we'll never have physical locations. And now they realize that there's kind of a demand for that. So what's a, what's a third point? Yeah, I think a third point for this is is us as consumers, sort of that, that blurring of lines when we come to how we interact with these two you know, converging players, so to speak. And I think you and I have talked about this, but it's really sort of that convergence of how are these brands, these retailers communicating with us and how are we communicate back with them, right? So the ability to, to weave into it, not only the physical 
experience, but the digital experience. Now, and I don't mean just websites, Twitter feeds, things like that, but I truly mean some of this digital ability to interact, this digital ability to build intimacy, if you will, with that brand, whether it's a retailer or a brand. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. I think a great example, you know, this is where if you look towards China, right, I think they're certainly leading the charge in this. It's almost like back to the future where they're using digital medium to basically apply sort of a home shopping network type thing, right, to promote products through TikTok and other media to then push consumers to buy it. And people are looking at these, it's almost like personal shoppers through digitization for the masses, right? I think, again, that line is blurring, right? So who do we trust? Well, maybe if this TikTok user has 2 million users, I'm going to trust them more than if, you know, the Gee TikTok feed has three users and one of which is my mom and one's Joe. And right. you know, <laughs> So I think we're, we're seeing that blurring of lines of where do we go to get our information or buy information? Who controls it? And who sort of disseminates that information to us and allow us to make our buying decision? Right. And, you know, if you went back just 20 years ago, we were online just barely, right? Yep. You would never see anybody who was a digital native company with a lot of trust. They, right. We didn't have enough experience with them. Now, you mentioned Neverlane. We talked about you know some other brands, Warby Parker, whoever it might be. There is a, Amazon's a perfect example. I remember when Amazon first came out, big, bold letters, 866, whatever their number was. And I remember thinking, <laughs> they were so convinced that people like myself would go, I don't, you know, I might have to call them. I'll do, I'll do the best I can online. I think they have made, they've won people over with the way, how well it works. And when you say, oh yeah, but what if I have to return it? And for a long time, what if I have to return it? Now I don't think people are as concerned. It's a, it's a big problem. We have way too many returns, but people don't distrust these companies because I think they've they've earned our trust. However, you know, like everything, I think there's still what's interesting, speaking of Amazon, but others, right? There is this notion where there's a challenge on them to continue to earn our trust from the standpoint of, as you said earlier, right? Are they a retailer? Are they a marketplace? Are they a technology company? Are they a fulfillment company? Like who knows? But if we take that marketplace aspect, right? How do they continue to earn our trust if they can't moderate or monitor products being sold through their marketplaces? And I'll give you an example, right? I, a couple of years ago, I bought a pair of uh, Dr. Dre Beat headphones. You know, the price was really good on Amazon. Probably that's been the first indication, right? It was a little too good. And I ordered them and it took forever to get to me. And it shows up in this little box and clearly it came from China. And I opened it up and literally, Joe, I opened it up, I put them on, they fell apart. Like I couldn't even turn them on, right? And it was awful. And the process for me to go return them I still have them somewhere. Why? Because I, you know, who knows who the supplier was? Amazon, as you mentioned, they don't have that number up anymore. So you have to go through all these, you know, these these sort of rigmaroles to get somewhere. Could never figure it out. And you know, they push it off. They're like, we'll talk to the merchant. Well, I don't know who the merchant is, and they're not getting back to me. So I will say, yes, they've built up trust, but that trust can be lost very quickly. Right. You know, if something happens, especially in these marketplaces. Right. By the way, you can, um, right now, if you go on to Amazon, because this happened to me not so long, I had a problem. I was trying to return something and um, it said, would you like us to call you? And I was like, yes. And they called me like in five minutes. Yeah. And I was like, and, and it was excellent. Again, I'm very impressed with what they're able to do. What's interesting, and we talked a little bit about this when we're prepping, is uh, when I buy something on Amazon, they know everything about me. They know my purchases over the last 10 years, right? And they can create a buyer persona based on me. So even though when you're selling online through Amazon, that marketplace, you might say, 
Joe's my customer. Amazon looks and says, yeah, he's your customer, but he's really our customer. (laughs) We've been working with him for a long time. We know everything about him. You don't. And what's interesting, when I was just at a store recently, two stores, it was one was, I think, a Kroger. One was like a Rite Aid or something. Mm -hmm. If you don't get a, if I don't give them my phone number and kind of register with them, they have a much higher price. So it was like, I'm buying a bottle of pop. It was like 50 cents more if I didn't want to give them my phone number. So I think what they're doing right now in the in the retail world is saying, hey, Amazon knows everything about Joe. We're going to know everything about him too. We're going to build a customer persona about Joe and his purchases. And so it's, it, again, it's one more place where the retailers started realizing we're at a big disadvantage to the online guys who are able to kind of build these profiles because we don't know what Joe buys. Well, now they do. <laughs> now they do. But but you're absolutely right. I think that's, again, the blurring of the lines when it comes to the data aspect of us as consumers. A, what's the price of our privacy? To your point, what that kind of told us is, hey, if, I'm, if you're willing to give me 50 cents off a bottle of pop, I'll give you my data. Right? And I, I think, you know, all of us, for the most part, we just see, hey, you're giving me money back, I'll do it. You know, I think... What will happen as we continue to evolve where people start realizing, wait a minute, I'm, I'm giving you my data. I, I think we're kind of been trained to that, unfortunately, or for, you know, for whatever reason. But you're absolutely right. I think the physical folks have realized, my goodness, like you see this all the time, right? Type something into Google or Gmail and two minutes later, see that an ad related to that email pop up when you're browsing somewhere else, right? So, it's like, wait a minute, like how do they figure that? You know, we know how they figure it out, but they they are you know spidering all this information and able to do that so now the physical kroger and others what they want to do obviously is build that intimacy now right. what's interesting and i think the challenge i put out to all these brands and these retailers is great collect data i get it you know hats off to you i know that you you need it now what do you do with it right what's your data governance you know right it's right. it's it's almost i think wasn't it google's old saying like do no evil or something it's like what are you doing with my data? Like, are you reselling it? Are you going to just give me promotions? We've seen these famous things like Target, right? Who who saw data on someone buying like pregnancy tests and all that, and then sent them a, a you know coupon on diapers. And all of a sudden, that person was like, "Wait, no one's supposed to know about this." And you know, cats out of the bag. <laughs> so you know, there's certain limitations that we have to be conscious of. But I think to your point, there's this sort of race between brands retailers to meet our expectations. And at times I think part of that is they believe or they don't believe their strategy is collect as much data as we can, because that's how we're going to get there. Right. You know, there was years ago when I was still working in automotive, there was a, uh, there was like a, like an ebook, but a long ebook. It was, I forgot the name of it. It might've been blur, but it, it talked about, could we give a car away for free if we were able to track it? So if I said, gee, I'm going to give you a car and you give me all your information, what do you make? Yeah. Where do you live? Kids, married, single. I ask you everything. I, I build up and then I say I gave Guy a free car. And now I see where Guy goes every day. Yeah, I see where he parked. So I know he ate at that restaurant. At some point, I've got an enormous amount of data on somebody. And if you're the right demographic, maybe I can give that away. So I, I see what I see where all these guys, why they want the data. But it is um, interesting because I think the retailers are behind on this. I don't think they'll be behind for much longer because getting Kroger and I think it was Rite Aid might. The prices are much more expensive if you don't if you're, give them, if you're not registered. Yeah, it, it's it's the loyalty. Pr- and it's funny you talk about the the car analogy. 
That's why Google started Gmail and gave it away for free. That's why Microsoft did Hotmail, gave it away for free, right? It's here's your car in the digital world. Take it for a spin and we're going to track who you're emailing with, what you're talking about, right? It's exactly that analogy. And I think it's almost like all these brands, all these retailers need to find their free car to then collect our data. Right. Right. So what's another point that you want to hit on this blurring of the lines? Yeah, I think one of the other you know key points when it comes to the blurring of the lines is really sort of the circular aspect of fulfillment of inventory. Right. Because, again, if we're now ordering and we're now interacting with brands and retailers from from it doesn't matter who they are and also doesn't matter where we're interacting with them. We're interacting with them online, in person, at pop up stores, et cetera. And, you know, I've talked about this, right? Now the question becomes, well, now we're going to have a glut of inventory flowing out. We know that it's going to be a bunch more of it coming back. And I think that's the part that's that's really sort of being driven, not just by the blurring of the lines, but just by our behavior in general as consumers in a way that some of the brands and retailers have trained us to be able to say, and Zappos might be the king of this to start, where they're like, hey, Joe, you know, you're, you, you want to buy a pair of shoes? Well, you know what? You know, you're a 10 and a half, but in this brand, we don't know. So why don't you get a pair of 11, a pair of 10, and you get a brown, a blue, and a black pair. We'll send them all to you for free, right? Don't worry about it. Keep them as long as you want. And then whenever you're ready, you tell us which ones you keep, and you ship back the other pairs, and we're fine with that. The returns is a huge problem. I mean, I think it's 30% of stuff bought online is sent back. And I think venture capitalists are probably eating some of that right now, but we will not be subsidized forever. So we have to do a better job on the sizing. And again, this came up on another podcast. My mother was watching the Home Shopping Network and she said, they do a great job on sizing here. So they'll tell you, you know, how tall they are and yeah. what they weigh and and how it fits. And they do a good job because they realize that they're going to get returns. Yep. They might not have a deep pockets behind them waiting to uh, subsidize a whole bunch of returns. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, we've touched on this before too. I think there is going to become much more of a sustainability right. element to this, right? Where we understand that, a, shipping is not free, not just from a cost perspective, paying drivers and all this, but also from an environmental perspective. Right. CO2 being burned by the transportation, corrugated usage, and then the returns, right? Because now you're doing everything in reverse. I have to pay for you know CO2 to bring stuff back. I have to re-slot it. I might have to repackage it. I might have to dispose of the product. You know, One statistic I saw is something like North American families on average, throw out like 80 pounds of textiles a year, which end up in landfills, right? That's that's not sustainable, right? We cannot right. continue down that path. And what we're seeing, like any of us mentioning them, so let's pick on them some more. We you know, talk about Amazon. Go look at your Amazon packages when they send it to you. How efficient are some of them, right? right. I just ordered a bike pump for us. It's kind of a weird shape, obviously. It came in this massive box, Right, right. right. You, you, you thought I ordered, you know, I don't know, a, a huge bag of cement, <laughs> right? And, and it's air filled, and there's you know plastic fill in there too, and it's just like, man, like this is this can't be good. Right. Um, but you look at you you look at some companies out there, right, who are doing this. So I, I used to work with a company called Pack Size, which is really interesting, where they build the box up front and they try to customize build the box so it fits perfectly around the item. Right, right. You look at folks, you know, Chewy does a pretty good job with this. Like they're going to really try to maximize that box 
they send the dog food right. in. But I think you're going to see more and more of that because we as consumers are becoming more conscious, especially millennials, like we have to mention them, which is great. I think it's going to help drive some of this change of behavior from that flow. And then from the return standpoint, it's not just about, do I really need to return this? Should I keep it? Should I do something else with it? But I do think it's an opportunity for both the brands and the retailers to grasp this touch point with their customers, right? So when Joe orders something and you go to return it, how do I take advantage of that touch point with you, right? How do I make you happy, right? Because maybe right. you return it because maybe you don't want it. Maybe it's broken. Maybe, you know, you don't need it. Great. I want to take it back, but can I do something to delight you in another form or fashion? And I think that's, that's, I think we're going to see more and more strategy. And for example, like, you know, we talked about some of these brands out there, but you look at like, I love this example of Madewell, right? Who sells denim, right? They have a program where you bring back used denim. They'll give you 20 bucks off the next purchase. They're going to use that denim then for, you know, house, uh, home insulations, things like that. And they're, they're very proud of it as they should be. Great example, right? All of a sudden now it's, it's, they know their customer, they know sort of their supply chain, they know how to bring that sustainability in there. And it, from their appearance, and I think I take them for their word, like they truly care about this. And I think that's going to play more and more into our buying decisions as consumers. Right. We all want to buy from ethical supply chains. So the idea that, you know, if you say, hey, I got, this was really inexpensive. But if I find out later on that the people doing it were working in a sweatshop on the other side of the world, I don't feel good about it. You know, I think Apple missed a huge opportunity years ago with Foxconn. Yep. I would have been a lot happier had Apple said, yeah, we saw it and we're going to do something. We're going to create a fund and we're going to make sure that these people are taken care of. We are not going to give you a cheap phone and at the same time have a horrible life for somebody on the other yes. side of the planet. I think there's another piece, which is the sustainability. I think at some point we're going to start seeing a price put on that. I don't know what the currency is, but it is measuring environmental impact. And so when I say I want that toothpaste delivered to my porch, it's free. It's not free. It costs money. Somebody's paying for it, a VC, or they're subsidizing me because I buy lots of other stuff. But there is an environmental cost that I put out there. I could have waited till next week when all my groceries get here to get that toothpaste. Right. And I think at some point it's good for the brand. It's good for the world and the consumer. Ultimately, if we say, Hey, gee, I can give that to you today, but here's how much it impacts the environment and maybe even put some, some cost penalties against it and say that, look, the reason we're putting a cost penalty against it is because there's an environmental cost to this. I want to make you aware. And I think that will engender some loyalty too. Absolutely. And I think you're, you're spot on. I think it, it will engender loyalty. I think it will engender people. And I, I've seen some statistics around this where people are saying, you know, they're willing to pay a little bit more of a premium if they know the brand is, you know, environmentally friendly, take care of the, you know, sustainability, things of that nature. I think part of that and this is interesting. We talked about the article I was interviewed for. You know, one of the things I talked about is exactly that is brands and retailers need to be more transparent with their end customer, right? They need to, in a way, unblur the lines and be crystal clear as to here's why you're being charged X for this shipping. And here's why free shipping isn't free. Right. And here's why we're doing what we're doing. And I do believe that will garner a lot of loyalty and trust by some consumers. It's not going to be for everybody. And I don't think they should think that way, but I think they're going to carve out their specific loyal niche. Who's going to say, you know what, I'm going to stick with this brand because you know, I believe in what they're doing or I like their product, you know, not just their product, but the way they're doing it. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's interesting. 
one of the things I've talked about in the past, and I think you and I touched upon this, is companies don't compete. Their supply chains do. And, and you think about one little bad hiccup in your supply chain you know, can really affect you. And a great example I have is if, if people remember, you know, Kathy Lee Gifford back when she did the morning shows, she was right. you know, top of the top of the world. She had a clothing line and it was doing okay. It wasn't great, but it was, you know, she was, she, she had a good brand name. And all of a sudden it came out that to your point, there was child labor being used in her, in one of her suppliers. It completely destroyed her brand, right? People just completely walked away from it. Why? Because they're like, I can't be associated with this. Right. So I think, you, you see the negatives, but let's turn around and see the positives where if you're doing the right thing, I think brands should be proud of it and to show their customers. But again, it's that communication, that transparency with customers right. to make them aware of it. Right. Many years ago, and I won't mention uh, the company that I was working with, but I was in China and uh, we were going to visit auto suppliers and uh, we we're outside of, I think, Beijing. And I remember somebody said, one of the Americans who had lived there in China for years and then was back in the States. And he said, oh, isn't that the prison? It's huge complex. And they <laughs> said, and the Chinese people spoke in Mandarin for a minute. And then they said, we don't work with that supplier anymore. And um, <laughs> I remember somebody said, right after that said, you didn't hear that. <laughs> because, because that, because that was, that was, a, a, there was insinuations that they're using slave labor. Yeah. And um, that's not good for your brand. <laughs> it's not. And, it's, and I think part of what we're talking about here is that blurring of lines. Right? We talked about a few discussions a second ago about the, the world of digitization and the world of communication. I think part of that is I can read the news of what's happening in the outer reaches of China or you know India or Sub-Saharan Africa or Mexico or United States or Canada, right? I have access to that information on my phone, on my laptop, on my tablet, right? Instantaneously. Now, of course, it's not all transparent, but this is not like it was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago where, you know, you, you don't have that access. You don't have the access to taking a video recording in a factory and putting it on YouTube and all of a sudden it's, it's accessible to the world, right. which I do think is great, right? It's, it's certainly holding accountability and making things more transparent. Part of that challenge, again, part of that blurring lines part, is when we think about our brands, our retailers, is how do they leverage that to, again, over-communicate with us as consumers of how their supply chain is working and how their supply chain is not just this sort of dirty cost center that we don't even think about. Now right. it's an opportunity to, to showcase, like, hey, this is how it's working. This is why it's good for you as a consumer. This is, again, to your point, Joe, it's like, this is why I'm charging you for this kind of shipping because I'm not you know, shipping, I'm not sending it on a plane every two days. I'm being smart, consolidating shipments and moving it in a cost-effective, sustainable way. Um, and oh, by the way, if you want it quick, I could do it, but you got to pay for it. Right, right. And and again, I think when you start to see brands, and again, Patagonia, uh, Allbirds, um, those are just two I know of that are become B Corps. Um, people are buying from those companies. And Crystal Creek Logistics was on my podcast. They are a B Corp. People are buying from them because they like their environment, that they treat their people right, they treat the planet right, and they're still making some money. And people, planet, profit. Profit, yeah. We need all. Absolutely. <laughs> all I think, though, if you're buying Patagonia because that you know they, they do things ethically, the idea that somewhere along the line um, you're going to do something that uh, takes a shortcut and potentially hurts the planet or people, that's you're not going to get away with that as a logistics company or a fulfillment company. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the part that's it's it's again yeah, it's not blurring, it's actually more clarifying the lines, so to speak, right. communication, right. which is, hey, you know, we're watching, right? We as right. consumers are watching, and we as consumers, 
we hold the power now in a way because we have the access to that information that is unfiltered big degree. And therefore, you know, we're going to hold you, the brand, you, the retailer to a higher standard than we might have otherwise. We're not just going to trust when you tell us X, Y, and Z, we're going to verify. Well, this is a big topic and it's an interesting one because we really, these lines are really blurred and they're going to continue. I mean, we're talking about whether Walmart and Amazon are one and the same now, what one's a re- physical retailer, one's a not, but right. really, really, in a few five years, ten years, where you started won't matter. Everyone will be doing everything. So, can you summarize this topic for us? I know it's a big one, but give us a summary and some final thoughts on the topic. Yeah, I think it's a big one. Obviously, as you said, Joe, it's one we could we could talk for at length, which which you know I, I know we have and we will. But I think the big notions that we have to keep in mind with this sort of convergence is blurring is that first and foremost, we as consumers we don't care anymore if it's a retailer, if it's a brand, if it's you know a direct to consumer. All we care about is that you know we are looking to access a certain product, a certain service, and that we just. Want it to be the way that you would advertise it, or the way that you know we expect it. So I think that's the first and foremost, right? That blurring of the lines where we are, or we expect the retailer, the brand, to meet our expectations wherever, however, however we want it fulfilled that we expect. So I think that's that's the big sort of lesson that that we all take from it. And then the second one is, and this we kind of touched upon it, but I think it's important to remind everybody is part of that challenge now is we're putting a lot of complexity in terms of the fulfillment, the supply chain, right? The way to get that right. that physical asset to us. Because the digital part, and it's not easy, but it's easier, in my opinion, than the physical side, right? right? And I think that's part of when we think of this blurring of lines, we have to remember that we're still operating in a physical world. And how, right. do, we, how do we make sure we meet that physical world, meet those physical constraints. And then part of that sort of a third point is this whole notion of, you know, the circular aspect, the the aspect of sustainability, the aspect of being good stewards. I think all of that plays into it as well, because as you said, the blurring of the lines as a consumer, if I buy something at Kohl's and it's got Under Armour on it and I don't like the product, I'm going to blame both of you. Right. And it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It doesn't matter who may, you know, screwed up. It doesn't matter if, if it was my 3PL that did deliver it properly. As a consumer, I'm holding you accountable. So right. those lines are blurred where all of a sudden now you can't pass the buck and say, well, I'm just Kroger, you know, go blame Kellogg's. No, 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 no. Right. I'm holding you all responsible. Right. right. And I think that's going to be key where when we think about how we approach the consumer, Regardless of we're a brand, we're DTC, we're a retailer, right. we are all responsible for that relationship. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Guy, before you go, tell us a little bit about Texas. Who, who do you guys, well, by the way, I, <laughs> every time I say that, every time you say it, I think of the state. But we're not talking the state. We're talking, we're talking about state. Texas, T-E-C-S-Y-S. Texas. Correct. So, Texas. who do you guys serve? So great. Thanks for asking, Joe. So yeah, so, you know, Texas, we are, you know, global supply chain company. We serve a bunch of industries of which are like healthcare, retail, uh, the wholesale space, 3PLs. You know, we have a bunch of solutions around execution, around order management, around the financial aspect, analytics and supply chain. You know, when we're really, you know, our sort of bread and butter is really to take on the complex supply chain issues to really help customers, global customers, you know, in times of transition, in times of inflection, to really come to us and to work with us, to be able to provide those solutions to help them deal with the issues they're dealing with today, but more importantly, 
prepare for what's coming down the road. Because you and I both know, being in supply chain as long as we have been, that we don't know what's coming down the road. We know things are going to change. We just don't know when and how fast. But one of the big things that we really emphasize is to be able to prepare these companies and our, our companies and our industries for that. So, you know, I'm really excited about being here. I think it's uh, it's really an interesting place to be in a great time from a perspective of what we're offering and, and the markets that are out there. Right. I like that you guys are global. And the reason I say that is because in supply chains are global. And the idea that, you know, you say, oh, well, we just work in the United States or we just work in Europe. Yeah, that, that's not no. particularly useful these days. I need you to be on any continent. <laughs> I need Anywhere, anytime. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, what I'll do, Guy, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put a yes. link to Texas, not the state. The not the company. state, yep. And I also put a, we mentioned Authority Magazine. Yes. That was an interesting article. I'll put a link to that. And then um, I know your guy, Adam, told us, you guys have a new podcast. What we is do, that? yes. Thanks for reminding me, Joe. So, you know, absolutely love, you know, this great conversation, but, you know, we have our own podcast. It's called The Great Supply Chain Podcast. It can be found on all your, you know, podcasting sites. But yeah, we'd love to have folks uh, listen to that podcast. We're going to actually have a continuation, uh, some of the threads that you and I just touched upon, especially around sustainability is going to be a big thread that we're going to be talking about very soon. So I encourage all your listeners to come uh, listen to that podcast and of course, continue to listen to this one. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts out there. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your uh, to your podcast in the show notes. Perfect. Appreciate it, Joe. Well, Guy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing uh, your expertise with us again. Joe, anytime you'll have me on, you know I'm happy to be here. Love these conversations. And uh, again, great topics that we could, again, spend you know months and months on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was just looking at my notes. I was like, we should have also talked about this, this. And then I was like, no. <laughs> we'll do another podcast for that, Joe. I'm, I'm good in short doses, Guy. That's what I've, that's what I've learned. <laughs> you don't want to over, I, I don't want to overdo, anyone to overdose on me. Anyway, thank you so much for uh, coming on and uh, thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logistics of logistics.com.